Attention listeners, this episode addresses topics related to addictions, specifically focusing on the current opioid crisis. Please be advised that the information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute medical or therapeutic advice. The discussions and perspectives shared may be triggering to some individuals, particularly those who have experienced addiction or know someone who has. We urge listeners to consult with a qualified healthcare professional regarding personal health questions or concerns. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please seek professional help or reach out to a national helpline in your country. Remember, your well-being is paramount. Please listen responsibly. Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is going to cover a lot of very, very important contemporary topics. And I really encourage everybody to listen to this episode. Each episode is, has its own relevance and importance, but this is a very, very openly, not openly, starting to be a little bit more openly uh, discussed, which is going to help to move the needle, I believe. Uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, yes, uh, a little bit into brain injury. We're going to be talking about healthcare in general. Um, we're going to be talking about biases. We're going to be talking about uh, a little bit into you know, a not sick brain injury, a little bit into there, we're going to be talking about, you know, a little bit into addictions and behaviors. So we're going to be covering a lot uh, of ground here today. And we have such a remarkable guest today to share perspective for, for us on this topic. We have Leanna Roy with us here today, and she is a professional uh, in healthcare. So she has served as a, as a coroner, as an RN, but also as a psychiatric nurse. And full disclosure, she's also a friend of mine. <laughs> we went for coffee earlier this summer to catch up. She's also a teacher of mine and a mentor as well. So Leanna, I want to thank you for joining us today and for sharing some of your experience and your wisdom and your story with us today. Oh, what a beautiful welcome. Thank you, Mark. I'm really happy to be here today to talk to you and your audience about something that is very near and dear to the both of us. 100%. So for people that are listening here, you know, this is called the Brain Mastery Podcast, but really what we're trying to do is share stories of lived experience, both, you know, personally and professionally around brain health. A lot of talk over the past real century is around physical health and remarkable things that have occurred there to help move the needle in physical health and then therefore transitioning that into quality of life. Now, when we think about, you know, the world of brain health and really honing in on your specialty and expertise both professionally, but with lived experience, what would you like to be able to say sort of your main messages and maybe where we could start is how you and I came to meet? Because I think that's a really interesting and challenging origin story where you really taught me a lot. Well, and I mean, that, that goes both ways. We both gained tremendous knowledge from our experiences. You know, our planets basically all aligned to bring ourselves together. And the way I ended up meeting you was a friend of mine happened to be working in the same building going back a few years now to 2018, where Watson Brain Health was uh, operating. 
And she knew of my daughter, Amanda's story, Um, Amanda, and, you know, we'll I'll unfold what happened, but mm-hmm. she suffered uh, an overdose of fentanyl uh, in September of 2017, which really plunged not only Amanda, but myself and our family into a really dark place where there was just a complete change in not only her personality, but her ability to communicate and even things as simple as walking and, and keeping her balance. So it was a really dark time in our lives. And so when I happened to stumble across yourself and the Watson Brain Health Program, I was in a place where it was really hard to see a light at the end of our tunnel. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember that you and I met in January of 2018. And um, you were a little bit, um, <laughs> if I can say, a little bit um, hesitant Yes. About Amanda's story. You're, you're being um, kind. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were, let's, let's put it bluntly, you were reluctant. And I just yes. remember saying to you, Mark, well, what difference does it make how a brain injury was attained? What you're targeting, what you're trying to do is to help that individual so that, you know, um, neural pathways can be remapped and that they can gain back cognitive ability that they lost. Mm-hmm. So I'm here today very happily because my main message will be one of, first of all, never give up and a message of hope that things will and can get better. And, you know, our experience with the Brain Health Program changed not only Amanda's life, but all of our lives where she is, you know, with her family and communicative and engaging and able to still have a connection with my grandson, her son, uh, which was lost during those really dark months. Beautiful. I mean, so well said, Leanna. And, you know, I remember that meeting very well. And I remember it was interesting is I like to perceive myself as someone who's open. And, you know, that's really the irony of, of what you said was not lost on me. That was what led us into that facility in the first place. And I, I remember after that meeting going, you know, she's right, you know, and I just need to move past my own biases, right? And you opened up that to me in a beautiful way where I was like, almost right after that meeting, I'm like, we need to we need to really think about this. This is a serious issue. And you really opened up my eyes because you're right. Why does it matter how an insult and injury and illness occurred? Absolutely. What's important if, the, if there's motivation to get somewhat better, how do we enable that individual to get into a program that may be able to help them help themselves and then let the data speak. And that was the the beautiful thing about the process. Well, and, you know, Amanda's story was so remarkable. And, you know, I, I'm going to go back and, and I and I will kind of start how, how things happen for her so that your listeners have an mm-hmm. idea. So Amanda is the youngest of my three children. Today, she's 33 years old and she lives independently with her partner. But back in 2009, what happened was she was in a car accident. She was a driver and she got struck by another driver that was having a seizure behind the wheel. So Amanda ended up actually with a fracture in her neck, um, which caused um, a lot of pain, both in her neck and in her back. Luckily, it was stable. There was no neurological deficit because of that. But what ended up happening was a very well-meaning family doctor uh, gave her pain medication and he put her on OxyContin, which, you know, we all know the story of OxyContin and what it created. Um, So 
she uh, took the OxyContin as prescribed and you know, then the prescription ran out. And of course, that's when her slippery slide into the world of addiction began. And of course, this was well hidden from us, you know, initially. So it progressed from, you know, using prescribed OxyContin. And then of course, she had to turn to buying illicit source of OxyContin, which was available on the street till about, I think, 2011, 2012 until we started to see the advent of fentanyl, which was a complete game changer. And, um, you know, even today still claims over six lives a day in our province alone. It's just heartbreaking. So what happened? uh, So that was 2009, the car accident. In 2011, she decided herself that she wanted to quit her addiction cold turkey. And at this point, we had no idea. She was still maintaining work and was functioning. So what happened is she basically threw herself into acute withdrawal. And I got a phone call from the emergency room. I was at work to go to the eMERGE. And when I got there, she was in a lot of pain. She had been seen by the doc. They had started um, an IV. They'd given her uh, something for pain, done blood work. But she was writhing in such a way where her legs and knees were coming up her chest, almost to her chin. And having been an eMERGE nurse for 10 years, when I saw that, I thought, that's withdrawal. It's a very distinct presentation of that immense pain that someone suffers. So I confronted her. She didn't admit anything uh, initially. Her purse Mm -hmm. was there and I opened it. And there, there was the evidence that I needed. There was a baggie with white powder residue and a short straw. So once I confronted her with that, she admitted and told me what she'd been trying to, to do. And of course, I'd wish she had told me I would have helped her. Anyhow, yeah. so I said to her, the next step is you got to tell the doctor. Well, this was the interesting part. So the doctor came back to the bedside uh, with my help. She was able to divulge what had been going on. And there was an immediate change in his demeanor. Mm. All of a sudden, it was, and again, it's my perception, and it could be incorrect, but it was my mm-hmm. perception. I, I kind of, the, the perception I had was that he felt he had been duped and he was not happy. So IV gets pulled out. He told her that she's being discharged. There was no talk about methadone or opiate agonist therapy like Suboxone or anything else that we mm-hmm. could try. No referral, um, as I said, to an addiction specialist. Out the door we went. So you can imagine, there I was as her mother, um, but there are so many people that show up in an emergency room, like Amanda did, that don't have someone to advocate for them. And it just kind of sends chills down my spine when I think about that. So to make a long story short, she continued with addiction. Uh, we knew about it. It was out. She wasn't uh, living with us. Eventually, she moved out. But she continued with her addiction. She struggled with the fentanyl addiction for uh, several years. And uh, it was almost eight years in total that her addiction ran until this one night in September. And what had happened was she had been living with a roommate. I had her son, uh, my grandson, living with me. Of course, you know, the ministry was involved, all of that. She was not capable of looking after him, obviously. And um, I got a very disturbing text message from her and I contacted her roommate because it didn't make any sense. And he said, yeah, something's going on. And so over I went 
And I found someone who looked very different than the Amanda I knew. Mm -hmm. And I knew something had happened. And in hindsight, she probably had had a near miss where she had suffered some sort of anoxic insult to her brain Mm -hmm. from having a close call with a fentanyl toxicity, if you will. So I brought her Mm -hmm. home. And she hadn't been home for years at that point. Mm -hmm. So imagine our surprise where, you know, here was this person, my daughter, who was having trouble, like, communicating uh, well and wasn't making a lot of sense, but she still had the ability to arrange to get fentanyl delivered to our home when we were in bed one night. This is only three days later. And um, if it wasn't for my dogs barking in a very unusual manner, we would never have gotten out of bed and we would have found her dead on our kitchen floor the next morning. So you know, we went running down the stairs and I found her in full cardiac arrest on my kitchen floor. Cyanotic. So that means a lack of, a lack of oxygen. Her face was a blue, uh, discolored blue, pinpoint pupils, not breathing, no carotid pulse. And I knew exactly what had transpired. So I began CPR, you know, my husband and I had a son living at home at the time. He was on the phone with 911. And I honestly thought this was it. I can't bring her back from this. And strangely enough, I had no naloxone in the house. She hadn't been to the house in a number of years, really. Our meetings had always been outside of the home. And mm-hmm. um, and so here I was, completely unprepared for this. So she ended up overdosing that night. She, after about 10 minutes, took her first breath as the paramedics were just crossing our front door. You know, to say that I was shaken (laughs) would be an understatement. It was a frightening, frightening experience. So she went off to the emergency room and I ended up finding the small baggie of of fentanyl powder in her wallet, threw it into a Ziploc bag, and I brought it up to the emergency room with me when I drove up because I didn't want to obviously throw it in the garbage, right? I have a young child who's living here. I've got dogs that live here. And obviously, I didn't want anyone else to be harmed by it. No. But I brought it up to the eMERGE and I wanted them to safely dispose of it. And what happened there was actually really much less than ideal. So, you know, think about it. You've got a mom who's just conducted CPR on their daughter and has been through a very traumatic uh, incident in their home. And then my daughter was semi-conscious on a monitor bed. So the doctor came in and I gave him a brief history and told him what had happened in our home. And then I said, you know, can you please take this? Um, It's the fentanyl that she used and please dispose of it. And he said, of course, that he would. And what was shocking is that about 10 minutes later, she ended up being the nurse in charge. She pulled open the curtain and said, without introducing herself, and she was holding that Ziploc bag of the fentanyl. And she said, I'm just going to give this back to you because we're not going to process it. And as she said that, She tossed it on the foot of the bed, the bed that my daughter was lying in. I was speechless. And, you know, so I've been an, I've been an emergency nurse for many years. I've been a coroner for 28 years and I can understand all the stuff that goes on in emerge that make people a little jaded and cynical and burnt out, if you will. But Mm -hmm. I was stunned by that. And then off she went without a word. And it took me a few minutes to kind of just process what had happened. And then I got up and I went to the desk and I called her over and I said, excuse me, but are you the charge nurse? And she said, yes. And I raised my voice and I said, do you realize what an insensitive thing you just did? 
And of course, she got her back up. I said, you just gave me back the drug that almost took my daughter's life tonight. And her response was, well, what did you expect me to do with it? I said, you see your biohazard bin there? I expected you to safely dispose of it. And I said, and if you didn't want to do that, you could have called the police to come and take it away and dispose of it. And I said, and while you're doing all that, you can sign yourself up for sensitivity training. Man, I was pissed off, Mark. I was pissed off. And, you know, after that, uh, that conversation, which took less than a minute, I went back to my daughter's bedside and not a single nurse came back to her bedside in the, in the next four hours. The eMERGE doctor eventually came back. He told me that we were going to be discharged and I asked for some supports. You know, can we get a referral to psychiatry? Can she stay till morning? And it was like, no, you need to just follow up with your family doctor. So I ended up unhooking her from the heart, you know, the heart machine, from the tracings, her IV. I took out her IV um, and I had a call someone to, you know, where are your wheelchairs? They brought one just to outside the curtain. I put her in it and out we went. And, you know, about a month later, you know, I brought Amanda home. She was in a bad state. And for about 36 hours, she was bedridden and needed nursing care. And she was going through withdrawal, of course. And anyone who may have experienced withdrawal themselves or has witnessed someone going through withdrawal knows that it is a very, very painful process. So I had brought her home. Um, we eventually ended up going to a different hospital after she was, um, a bit more wakeful and we got the supports that we needed and we got a referral through this wonderful GP that was in, had moved to our community to an addiction specialist that I really credit with saving her life because I'll tell you this, he was amazing. And we went to see him. This was a month after her overdose. Mm -hmm. And he said, Amanda. I'm putting you on Suboxone. And she said, no. And she wasn't really very communicative then. She was almost catatonic where, you know, you knew she understood. There'd be a lot of eye blinking, but mm-hmm. the wheels were turning. You can almost hear it, but she wasn't able to do a lot of expressing. So he says, I'm not taking no for an answer. He said, <laughs> I had a nurse who was addicted to fentanyl sitting in that very chair two weeks ago. And she convinced me to let her think about it over the weekend. And Monday morning, I got a call from the coroner service that she had overdosed in her apartment. He said, I'm not letting that happen to you. So that began the physical support that she needed you know, she she agreed eventually. It wasn't that she was saying no, no, and we pinned her down. There was nothing <laughs> of that happening. <clears throat> I didn't pull out the roll of duct tape. Um, no, but no, she no. she consented, and it was a a long go. And she did have a a relapse until she got up to her optimal dose. But it was one of the things that helped her on her journey. So that was the end of September. And it was in January where I was very fortunate to be told of Watson Brain Health and the wonderful work being done there. And it was March where Amanda actually started her six-month program. I have to say, you know, Mark, you and um, the folks you had working for you were incredible. I had deep respect for what I saw them doing. And it wasn't until about six weeks or so 
into the program that we started to see this emergence. There was a big change in Amanda's cognition and her ability. And I'll tell you what brought it home for me. We had gone to a trivia night on the Saturday night and it was a fundraiser and there was eight of us. It was my boys and some friends and we were around the table and we were given a scrambled word and we were told it was a dessert. Well, you know, it wasn't, you know, the meeting of Mensa by any means there, but we were (laughs) stumped. We could not for the life of us figure out what this dessert was. And so we were now ready to go on to the next question. The announcer was saying, okay, time's up. Well, all of a sudden, out of Amanda, she shouts out, Black Forest Gateau. We were freaking shocked. And I just remember thinking, what just happened? And looking at one of my sons, he had the same incredulous look on his face. And that Monday morning, I remember writing in to um, uh, your, your, I think it was yeah. your d- director, it was Josh. Yeah, I wrote Josh. in and saying, yeah. Have you noticed that thing? And he said, I was just about to email you because we've noticed. And he had all these points and it was just so incredible. And anyone, anyone that had witnessed Amanda's journey from being able, being unable to speak or to have any sort of a communication conversation and then to have this blurted out black forest ghetto. And then things just, they just skyrocketed from there. They skyrocketed. Something that really, thank you for sharing that. And and thank you for your vulnerability in that, because it's a lot, right? And, you know, we take so much for granted, uh, many of us. And I think you really highlight that. And I really, you know, of course, I appreciate value you a ton and Amanda a ton, because I know both of you personally. But that doctor, I really value. Because that was a really courageous act yes. uh, by him. And, and he was not just a, a arm's length removed uh, physician. He was a human in that yes. moment. And that's pretty beautiful. You know, it's pretty, pretty he wonderful. He still gets a big Christmas basket from me each year. <laughs> um, I am forever grateful for what he did for Amanda and our family. And again, not to take credit away from Amanda, because she did the hard work. She did the hard work. And... Is she the same person she was before the overdose? No, but she is. I've always said she's she's Amanda with the dimmer switch just turned down a little bit there. You know, she she's not completely the same Uh, there. You know, she struggles with energy, with executive functioning issues, which, you know, many people that have had a um, hypoxic or a brain injury struggle with. And she really beats herself up for that, you know, and the one conversation we've always had is that there is no shame in your history. There isn't, Amanda. You know, it's what happened. Look at what you came through. Look at what you accomplished. And Amanda, I, you know, I always remind her how she is one of the fortunate ones. So many people who struggle with addiction, you know, they they want to get out of that awful cycle. But it's such a powerful thing. It changes the way you think and uh, the way you interpret the world around you. And Amanda was one of the fortunate ones that not only survived an overdose, but now leads, you know, a meaningful life. Well, and and you had a remarkable team. You know, I remember I remember meeting her 
the first the first time and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I've always been more of sort of like um I like systems. I've always liked integration and systems and and I love the the work of the cognitive rehab work that 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 Barbara has created and that Howard has championed. I love it. But what was really fascinating with Amanda, more so than 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 some of the other individuals that we had a privilege of serving, was once we got her moving in a reliable way, once we got that going, you saw the twinkle. Oh, <laughs> you know, right? absolutely, like, without a doubt. A, it was remarkable to me because I looked at I looked at other areas of of, of research and science. Dose aerobic exercise can change everything. Unfortunately, it's usually not done properly. It's not controlled properly. It's not right. measured properly. And I don't know if it was Tim or Niall, but probably both, who did a little bit of support and work with there. That's a magical relationship that it that unfolded. And it was a it was literally Amanda one step after the next. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of the beauty of what occurred in that little pod of remarkable humans was you had people who had history of stroke. You yes. had people with history of TBI. You had people with history of very severe TBI. You had uh, then, you know, people with with overdose. You had people with looking to strength and cognition, all in one group. And it didn't matter how you got there. Exactly. That was my favorite thing about it. How you got there, whatever. That's that's history. That's We've right. Got, where are we looking to go? That's and right. How are we going to look to get there? And 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 that was so beautiful to witness and I didn't get to really be a part of it. I got to witness it. And it was so beautiful to see the the e- each person being their own we're science people. Each person's an N of one. Um but where are you looking to get to? And yeah. it was really wonderful to see that and witness that with Amanda because sadly as you helped me to understand the prognosis, the system of care, the model is much like what I saw. Once I started to understand this, much of it appeared to be heavily rooted in compensatory strategies, which can limit the long-term trajectory of the individual. Well, and, you know, and that was what I, I struggled with. What I found interesting is that I think back to one neurologist we were referred to after her, um, her brain injury, and there was no mention of um, a brain recovery program. And then when I saw him the second time and I had told him very excitedly, you know, that I had come across Watson Brain Health and all these remarkable stories and it was news to him. And I thought, how can you, you know, I thought to myself, how can you be a neurologist and not be aware of the incredible work that there is hope? It's not the end of the story. It's not just let's order you some anti-epileptic medications and monitor your levels to make sure you're... No, no, there's a lot more that's available out there that can be done to help people get back to a semblance of you know where they were before. That's beautiful. I mean, it's so beautiful. And I think when I extend the compassion olive branch all the way through, you know, a lot of neurologists, you know, my understanding, many of them, you know, the important thing is is assessment, right? Is, is, is I have to make the proper diagnostic assessment of what I am seeing now. And then based on that assessment, okay, what is the long-term to ensure that I'm doing my job as efficiently as, as possible? And I've met some brilliant neurologists. I'm just mm-hmm. like remarkable. But when we think about the, the different disciplines involved, that's where I think the most important thing is to think about, okay, who's working in community? Who's working on the front line? And how, how do we share the information of other options to explore, to research, to better understand, to do it all responsibly and ethically, to be able to let the data speak? 
that's really it takes innovators like you really to move the needle well, and Amanda. You know, and, and I appreciate your comments, but really, um, I was a mom on a mission. You know, I was hell bent and determined to give her <laughs> the best of whatever I could to get her back to where she was. And this is the one thing that, you know, my wish would be is that that brain health support and, and treatment like she received at Watson could be mm -hmm. easily accessible to everyone without any barriers, without any financial barriers, that the support is there, that it's the same as uh, treating someone for a broken femur, right? Yeah. It's yeah. all part of getting people healthy again and back to living their lives. I couldn't agree more. And and that's really what part of what spurred our team on at ABI Wellness, which is really the model, uh, to, you know, not the best name on earth. It was one of those things we named and figured we'd name it properly later, but then we got our hands into the work and we were done. So we weren't right. focused on naming, but the idea was, okay, what's a model of care that makes sense, that's evidence-based, that could really help people to help themselves more. And one of the most interesting elements that, that I really enjoy again witnessing about it is yes you see people increase their capacities which is wonderful but what you start to see when people respond positively which almost all do uh, you see this slight switch in self-efficacy and i think that that's such a beautiful thing for people to have the the potential for is to be able to expect a little bit more of themselves and when you would explain to me the typical trajectory in this population i mean i'm like we let's go right <laughs> we we, we got to get to work here like, like, because we, we have a busy society with a lot of amazing people. We're going to yeah. need as many people as possible that want to do Abs as much as possible. Absolutely. And, and the yeah. standard of care was just not, you know, needed information, needed improving. And, you know, we have, you know, here in British Columbia, but across the world, we have this serious issue that, that you're quite well versed in. And if you could maybe give a little bit of your vision to that, I, I totally agree with you in terms of your hope for the future. but. Really specifically, when we think about you know accessibility and and even research, more research needs to be done, no question. What is your hope in this space in British Columbia even? What's the first step that people could take? Maybe it is education, but why don't you answer that? What's the first step people could take? That's a big question because I know that when I was searching, Mark, and I was talking to social workers and healthcare workers at the hospital and whoever else I could speak to, no one really could give me any direction where I could mm -hmm. lead. And I love the work that you're doing, that there is information and that there are avenues that people can pursue. And what I would really love, you know, my message has always been never give up, don't lose hope. Keep going till you find what you need for your loved one or for yourself. And the other thing that I you know, I spoke about accessibility, that, you know, a, a brain health program should be part of anyone's recovery and not be something that only people who can afford it can attend. But what I would also like to see is that there is more acceptance out there for, you know, I know that with Amanda, you know, she was anxious to get back into the working world. Mm -hmm. she's, in her, she's in her early 30s. She wants to work. She wants mm -hmm. to, you know, be self-sufficient and independent and contribute. Is that lack of I guess, understanding from some of the employers she came across um, with, you know, her struggles with time being a big one. Um, so I would love to see that there are more accessibility programs for people to be employed with that understanding that there, there need to be some accommodations made, you know, within reason, of course. 
100%. And I think that, again, comes down to education and understanding, but also really encouraging people to think deeper about the topic, you know, and, um, you know, sadly, we know human nature, not everybody's going to be able to do that at this time. But for those that are willing to maybe encouraging them to dig a little bit deeper, to try to understand what could be possible, because when we're younger, you know, we're always learning. And when we're older, the people I love being around, they're always learning, trying to figure out something new. And, you know, we all need, you know, people to help us accomplish what we're trying to do. And, you know, Amanda is one of the best examples of what's possible. And, and, but it was so hard for you to get access to it. It it was remarkable. about It was so incredibly challenging for you to get access to this kind of program for her. It was. And, you know, uh, if you are a believer that things happen for a reason, well, you know, if, if my friend hadn't been working in that (laughs) building where you were running your program, you know, because I wasn't finding things I was trying, I was going online, I was talking to people. So, you know, it's interesting how things just, you know, your path kind of gets lighted and then off you go. And, you know, Amanda's journey has been so inspiring for me and for our family. And she struggles. She struggles. She gets frustrated with herself. But, you know, she is alive and she is a mother to her son. And she comes to, you know, to family gatherings and she's still very present and an important member of our family. Um, And to think of what the alternative could have been is just really, it's a scary thought. It motivates me beyond belief, but more more than you'll ever know when we went for coffee this summer, you and I talked about that. It's like, that is such a motivator for me because when we look at other areas of health and wellness, when we look at cardiac rehab, we've got these options. When we look at, you know, um, you know, pulmonary rehab, we've got some yeah. of these opportunities. When we look at cancer rehab, we have more of these some yes. of these opportunities. We need to do the same thing here because this is the problem right now in front of us. Well, and it's right in front of us. I, I I can't agree with you more. And as you know, um, brain injury can be a very invisible injury, right? You know, it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. And uh, for some people, um, you know, to meet someone who has a traumatic brain injury, things are not going to be obvious to you, uh, perhaps right off the bat, or maybe not, because things can be masked and you don't know what the struggles are. So it's, um, you know, it's not as obvious, I guess, is what I'm saying, as maybe some other things may be. Well, and I just think it needs conversations like these to share them. Education is uh, so important. Education so is so important. important because a lot of people out there like you, I mean, you're tenacious, right? You're a force. You I'm know, pushy. And- That's what my <laughs> husband says. I'm very pushy. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, it's all good because you taught me a ton. And what, what, what concerns me and worries me is that not everybody out there may have that particular strength, but they have a loved one that has the same need or maybe even more need potentially. Who knows? Awesome. How do we ensure the education there so that programs can be more readily accessible? Whether people choose to engage with them or not, that's up to them. But if we can make them more readily accessible, and this is something you and I talk about. Yes, that is my have, wish. That is my we wish. We have Mark. to do it. Yeah, We have to do it. You know, and you've seen countless cases, obviously, from your position. But, yeah. you know, for what Amanda has gained, I'll tell you, those days way back when in 2017 and early 2018 were really dark for all of us. And I'm a pretty positive person, but I was really struggling with imagining a future that was going to look any different. So um, I wholeheartedly support 
the research and uh, education and the program itself and anything that I can do to to spread the message, I, I do with all my heart and I do it sincerely because you're it works. Amazing. It works. Yeah, you're, amazing. you're amazing. And you're a real you know gift to, to me and to this work. And, you know, I, again, I believe things just happen for a reason. And after I met you, I remember after that meeting, I'm like, I really need to listen. I think I like to think I'm open, open all the time. But when I began that began that meeting, I had I wasn't fully, and you helped me change and check myself. And and Amanda's lived experience was just so remarkable and remains such a gift. Well, and and to give credit to um, the health authority, where you know our our journey wasn't always very positive, they went out of their way because I did write to them. I wrote to them a month after Amanda's overdose, and I and, and I'm not a letter writer typically, but I thought no. <laughs> This is too important to let this slide. And it mm-hmm. was never, it was never about penalizing the nurse that I had that exchange with in the emergency room. This was about breaking through those biases and the stigma of addiction. And, and so to give the health authority credit, they brought me in, you know, to speak to yeah. their senior leaders, um, yeah. where, I, where I told my story. And that led to me being involved with two or three different opioid groups where, whether it was delivering, you know, uh, giving my lived experience voice to physicians who were embarking on uh, opioid agonist therapy with their own patients or um, task force and, and, mm-hmm. and different projects. And I, and I did, and I did that happily. Um, you know, not that I have all the answers to everything, but I certainly can speak from my years of being a coroner and seeing far too many people, you know, succumb to addiction. And in the emergency room, of course, my experiences there. And then uh, what I lived through with Amanda, it it just brought a different, I guess, voice to uh, what the team was trying to accomplish. I'm sure it hit home. I mean, I, I remember in, in school, we when I was in high school, I'll never forget, we had so many guest speakers come in. And some were good and some weren't. And one of the ones, you probably know the fellow, this would be in the mid-90s, he was a coroner. And he came in and said, well... I'm a corner. Like he was so blunt, and uh, he just said, um, "Sometimes I really hate my job." And it was talking about uh, drinking and driving, and he was so incredibly effective. And he just went, "So this one here," and he showed the crash. I'm like, "Holy smokes!" I had to go tell the mom. I had to lie. I don't like lying, but I had to tell the mom that you know, sadly, her son had had an accident, and this had happened, but he was drinking and and driving and, and he said so i lied because the reality was that as i recalled it unfortunately you're sad your 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 son died because he did something very bad and stupid hmm. he said so I, I and i listened to this and every i mean you couldn't get the ragtag group of grade 12 and 11 kids right, to shut up right, everyone right. was silent <laughs> right so you know it's a hard job that that the coroner must do and uh, I can't imagine, but hopefully by sharing some of this information and this education, you know, we can help to some people to move towards getting maybe the help they need or sooner. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and the one thing, because of course, you know, uh, when I do go to work, unfortunately, you know, I end up often meeting a family who has just lost somebody uh, to addiction and, you know, we're putting their son or daughter in a body bag and taking them off to the morgue. 
Um, but I share my story with them and I just want them to know that they're not alone, that I had a daughter that struggled with addiction, uh, mm-hmm. that now, you know, she lives with a brain injury. But, you know, the, the point of the story is with the families I've met over the years is that, you know, there isn't, there's no uh, cliche here. It's not just the people, you know, in the downtown east side that struggle with addiction. You and I know this. Um, oh. There are people that are standing in line with us at the Tim Hortons or that live in our neighborhood or uh, one of the other parents at the school, you know, that we go to watch uh, a basketball game of one of our kids playing. So it's, uh, they're the people in our community. And um, we just have to check our own biases because we all have biases. You like, you know, we like to think that we're open and tolerant (laughs) and, and, you know, we, we are for the most part, but there are things that we need to kind of do those self checks and to, to learn to be accepting uh, and to support people that are struggling, because not everybody has the same story and not everybody no. walks the same journey. No, that's so well said. And one quick thing, whenever I get really interesting people on this podcast and you've got such amazing knowledge, education, experience and lived experience, I always want to understand, are there any kind of influences that you have that you want to share? These could be a professor you may have had, a work colleague, a family member, obviously Amanda, maybe a book. Is there one or two little influences that you might have that might help to inspire uh, one of our listeners today? Well, I mean, you know, I, I came from a a pretty, um, pretty humble beginnings. I'm a first generation Italian Canadian. My parents came over as immigrants. They were very poor. They didn't have the chance to, to go to school because they were providing for their families and they had a real struggle. And I remember when I was going to school, there was a lot of negativity because we were we were immigrants. Um, there were awful names that we were called, and I and I hate to admit this, but I had two teachers that as well were very derogatory to me, and I remember that very specifically mm-hmm. when I was in elementary school. But it was the tenacity that my parents taught us mm-hmm. that really, you know, I was the first person from the two of them to go to school and get an education and, you know, to go into a profession. And they were immensely proud. My mom is still alive, but my dad was immensely proud of that. And they really were my inspiration about never giving up. And, you know, had the dice have been rolled differently for them, they would have loved to have done something similar to what I did, gone to school and become a professional, but they did not have those opportunities. And so they were very inspirational for me. Amazing. That's so well said. And, you know, for people out there that, you know, want more information about this, maybe want, you know, education, support, want to reach out for support. Are there any places that people can go, Leanna, that you would recommend that they go to if they're in need of support and in need of help? Any websites or can they email us and we can put them in touch with different links? I I would say to email you, Mark, would probably be the best. And I'm happy to chat with people. um, If someone, if, if there is something that resonates with one of your listeners and they Amazing. want to chat to me on a one-to-one, I am more than Amazing. happy to do that. I am semi-retired now and uh, I try to surround myself with joy, which means I have a lot of little rescue dogs around, <laughs> but I'm quite uh, more than happy to um, to, oh, to speak to anyone. So have them reach out to you, Mark, and then you can put well, your you're a special person in my life, and it's been my pleasure to share some of what you've taught me uh, with well, our listeners likewise, today. You've had a huge influence on me as well, and I'm a huge supporter of the work that ABI Wellness continues to do. 
Thank you. Grateful. Well, everybody, you know, this is, a, as I said, a very contemporary topic, a very important topic that needs awareness. So I would ask that, you know, please forward this along to someone you think might need to hear it, um, you know, download it, share it. Um, let's get the message out there, not just in our location, but, you know, everywhere, because there's there's a lot of misinformation about this topic that we need to work towards correcting. So thank you, everyone. We'll see everybody in the next episode. We may have to have you back if you'd be willing to do it because you're remarkable. Definitely be willing to do that, Mark. And it's always a pleasure chatting with you. You too. Thank you, everybody. See everybody in the next episode. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the Bears platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.